Welcome, Modern War listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Colonel Michael Lowes, the commander of the Army Asymmetric Warfare Group, about how his organization assesses emerging trends in warfare and their proponency for an outcomes-based mode of training and instruction. As always, the views in this podcast are the opinions of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. Please take the time to like the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and make sure to check out the other things that the Modern War Institute's doing on mwi.usma.edu and be on the lookout for our slate of podcasts in November, including General Retired Michael Hayden, the former NSA and CIA director, as well as Modern War Institute fellow Major General Retired Bob Scales. This is the Modern War Institute podcast. Well, Colonel Lewis, thank you for coming down and doing the podcast with us today. Um, I want to lead off for the folks that may not have an understanding of what the Asymmetric Warfare Group is and what it does. Can you give us kind of a, a once over the world as to what the purpose of the AWG, AWG is? Sure. The U.S. Army Asymmetric Warfare Group, uh, AWG, is a operational unit assigned to the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. It's a direct report to the commanding general. It's an organization that's been in existence for about 10 years, starting from the unfortunate high water point of IED proliferation in Iraq and Afghanistan circa 2004-2005 timeframe. Then the Department of the Army established the Joint IED Task Force, excuse me, the IED Task Force, of which the Asymmetric Warfare Group was born from, and the Joint IED Defeat Organization was also born from. One became a joint entity, and one became an army entity. The AWG focused on assisting units with becoming more combat adept, more ready for the problems that units faced in a counter-insurgency environment, for which many units were not prepared for in its training. Expertise involving counter-IED equipment, Techniques, targeting, focused operations, things of those nature were introduced to Army units in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Lessons learned from the battlefield were transported back to home stations where the next round of units that were preparing to deploy to combat would benefit from those lessons learned. The deeper lessons learned, which informed material development, were captured by the institutional portion of the Army and informed the development of certain programs such as counter-IED vehicles, um, handheld devices, and so forth. In essence, they were battlefield sensors who operated at the tactical level, assisted units, and helped inform the near future building out of Army capability. About three years ago, AWG moved into TRADOC from reporting directly to the Army staff and became TRADOC's Global Sensor Array to better understand the complex environment. Today, the AWG is postured across all global combatant commands, working closely with the Army Service Component Commands, such as U.S. Army Europe, U.S. Army Pacific, as well as the Theater Special Operations Command in each one of the different footprints around the globe. 
As the primary customers of AWG support, these organizations, these headquarters, benefit from AWD's, AWG's approach in making units ready for current missions such as regionally aligned forces, engagement, of course, continuing on with Afghanistan and Iraq, and a myriad of other types of operations. Today, I personally report to General David Perkins, the Command General of TRADOC, but have as my uh, customer base the Total Army. So in the evolution of the Asymmetric Warfare Group, they're starting from an IED focus and building up to what, per your description right there, is really a global footprint where you're touching on problems all over the planet that run the gamut from, uh, you know, low-intensity conflict all the way to the, the upper echelons of, of high-intensity conflict. With that wide a berth, so to speak, what does AWG prioritize and what are its what are its focus areas at this point? We have operational priorities, the first being the theaters of war, uh, directly supporting Central Command and uh, Army, uh, U.S. Army Central, um, and the various different joint force headquarters in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's because it's our nation's priority. Uh, on the heels of that priority, we have uh, effort in the Pacific in support of 8th Army and U.S. Forces Korea and 2nd Infantry Division as we prepare and better ready rotational forces, in this case an Army Brigade Combat Team that is forward positioned on the Korean Peninsula. We also support rotational forces in Europe. So currently there is a Brigade Combat Team uh, in Eastern Europe, stretched between Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, as well as other institutional advancements that focus on developing agile and adaptive leaders across both the institutional and operational army. There are many, many uh, different types of advisory support missions that uh, we currently are uh, conducting, but in many cases, it's uh, either uh, stretching from the very tactical to, in some cases, uh, strategic relevance. For example, uh, recently uh, I returned from Honduras where we were supporting elements of one of the state guard units as they conducted uh, regional line forces uh, missions in support of Guatemala and uh, Honduras. But then you go from that support to about a hunter man and a woman element all the way to where uh, we are currently conducting support to uh, U.S. Army Pacific and uh, the Special Operations Command that supports uh, Pacific Command in its effort to support Taiwan. Operational advisors from AWG are informing the Taiwan defense establishment on how to think about its regional threats and what methodologies in, a, in typical asymmetric thinking, could they employ to be able to offset or to deter those adversaries? So, again, from the very small to the very large and everything in between. So from a tactical standpoint, obviously each of those spheres that you're discussing have, have radically different implications for a new officer or a new lieutenant um, going out into the force. What are some common trends, though, that we're seeing across all of those those tactical domains? 
certainly there's a different threat emulation uh, that occurs, and it and it just happens. It always will happen because war, the battlefield evolves. That's one truth that I think that anyone can agree upon. But beyond simply the tactical piece, I think what we are recognizing in AWG is that those scholars and academics that talk about the character of warfare, the evolution of it, I think are in fact correct. In fact, I would articulate that it's not evolving, it has evolved. That we are perhaps in some measure of an inflection point for those military professionals that, that study uh, military history, in that with the proliferation of advanced technologies, coincidental to the advancement and lethality of modern-day weapon systems, we have hybrid threat emulation that operates in a multi-domain environment. And that is really complex. So the first, th the first thing that I would say is that there is an evolution. Perhaps it has evolved a character of warfare that down to the tactical level, there has to be some recognition and understanding of. Some other things that um, are probably lesser included in that uh, presumption would be the proliferation, as I mentioned earlier, of various technologies. What technologies, for example? I think we are seeing adversaries' uh, employment of uh, commercial capabilities that heretofore were not available uh, over the last couple of years. For example, uh, UAS, unmanned aerial systems. Some call it the poor man's Air Force. Some others would call it the pinpoint IED. Either way, it is a remarkably effective and inexpensive means to be able to deliver capability where a adversary did not have in its pocket even as recently as a year or two ago. We see the uh, proliferation of the desire to conduct operations using social media as a mission command uh, capability to be able to use social media as a means to influence large swaths of population. And the population is, in fact, a portion of the environment. And so what we're seeing is a fusion of a lot of different domains, a lot of different target uh, targets and uh, populations of focus. And uh, that just makes it a little bit more murky for the young leader today as he or her try to navigate and uh, move and maneuver successfully on today's battlefield. You talked about the proliferation of technology and the social media space. What do you feel like is is driving the, the sort of devolution of those capabilities down from what might have been, even a decade ago, a state-only capability like UAS down to the level of a, a group or even individuals? I think the cost per capability, cost per item, cost per effect is driven low enough to where a common user has it available. And when we say adversary, it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be a high-end adversary that's well-funded. It can be an adversary at the local level, a threat, who wants to employ such capabilities, but again, 
up until recently, never had the ability to because it was priced beyond the attainability of that individual or that group. So number one, it is, in fact, that the technology exists. And then second, that it is available so cheaply and it's available widely. And that's part of the globalization of economics and of commerce that we see. And that's, of course, promulgating this effect. So we talk in terms a lot about the proliferation of this technology in terms of its impact on, as you said, people who typically did not have the means previously to attain these sorts of systems uh, or employ these sorts of tactics like using UAS for for surveillance or, or other things. The question I have is what implications does the low cost of something like a UAS have for a higher intensity environment, something like the hybrid warfare threat that we sort of see with Russian incursions in Europe or, or other places where the the gray war concept or the lines of what is considered low and high intensity are, are blurring a bit. Right. I think that uh, before I address uh, some of the more obvious um, concerns, I'm going to approach this from a slightly different uh, direction. The fact that adversaries, small and large, can capitalize on uh, effects by way of equipment and technology, again, that uh, that really offer themselves now commercially at a good price point, should really concern us because, as I use the word, it's effective. It, it really is. Some of those uh, systems are more effective in many ways than our program systems that we and other Western states uh, have as part of our military capability. So the implication is that we in and others would have to think of how to more agilely maneuver within our procurement processes. And I know that this is way beyond the tactical piece, but it cannot be ignored because if your adversary is able to agilely move and on one day buy widget X on next day, realize that widget Y is available while the U.S. government and other governments are still monkeying around with trying to convince members of Congress or government that Widget X is the right thing to have, that's a real problem. And I think that the good news is that our Army understands that, and we have leadership that's starting to make a run at how do you adapt, how do you innovate more quickly, especially when we talk about procurement of material capabilities. Some other implications um, might be that our own forces need to become a little more adept savvy, if you will, at uh, the capabilities that um, are proliferating the globe. Again, some good news is that we have a generation of millennials that are naturally a little more comfortable with technology. And I think that while folks that are old as me might say that that's a disadvantage, uh, in reality, it is a distinct advantage. And I think that's another thing that our Army is starting to realize. And so when you talk about the capabilities of the individuals that go into, for example, the career uh, field of 17, the Cyber uh, Officer Corps. I think they're exactly trying to capitalize on those capabilities. But the point is, is that our soldiers, our NCOs and officers have to have um, at least, at minimum, awareness, better understanding of what it all means when you see all these things at play beyond the normal doctrine, and the current equipment that resides in our inventory. And that requires a, a different way of thinking 
and it requires a lot of thinking to be a little bit adaptive, a little bit agile, and start to adjust a little bit, knowing that the playing field, the battlefield, um, is uh, not straight military-military. Well, I think that's an important segue. In the, the list of things you talked about as being focus areas for AWG, the one that was not necessarily tied to, in my mind, at least a current geographic problem or, or theater problem, was the concept of adaptive leaders. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. How does the Asymmetric Warfare Group understand the concept of an adaptive or agile leader? We, we don't know any kind of lion's share of understanding of what ad agility and adaptability mean. But I'd offer that uh, we have studied soldiers, we have studied units, and the cohort of members of the AWG, in fact, themselves, uh, are trained to think a little bit differently. How do you solve the problem? What is the problem? What is the right problem? What are you really trying to achieve? When you start thinking about what's in front of you in that manner, now your brain is going to start to wander in directions where it may be a lot less linear than a method of thinking where it's one, two, three, four. It becomes a picture. And you look at the pictures. What's the pattern? Where's the gap? Can you frame the right problem? That's a little obtuse uh, of, a, of an answer, so let me uh, talk about it uh, slightly differently. The uh, Army leadership, most of our leaders in the Army, if not all, uh, have subscribed to the idea that we need to have leaders, soldiers and leaders, who are capable of 21st century competencies, competencies that necessitate uh, operating in an uncertain world. We just talked about all of that over the last few minutes. I mentioned that knowledge is involved. Perhaps there's other things, behaviors, emotions. But to sum of it all, it's creating within, or maybe it is cultivating within a soldier or a leader, the ability to make good decisions based off of understanding. That understanding of complexity, understanding within probably remarkable ambiguity of today's battlefield as discussed a, a few moments ago. The how to do that is maybe no one correct way, but we offer up one solution which uh, creates a frame for you to think about outcomes and objectives, not just simply what you're going to do on the next step. Again, uh, I don't know that any one organization has a lion's share of answers on this, but what we uh, are trying to do is to deliver to the operating force uh, certain methodologies of thinking just as a way, as merely a way to where their leaders can think about the problems they face just a little bit differently. And over time, as they practice it, it just becomes natural. And they become just a little bit quicker in their thinking, a little bit more varied in uh, methodologies, and uh, kind of, you've heard the term, out of the box, type approach. So really in your concept, in AWG's concept, the idea is to help foster in soldiers and leaders a, a mental framework, I think is, if I'm understanding that correctly, something, a way that they can think about a problem in an efficient manner that then can potentially generate new solutions. Is that, am I, am I gathering that correctly? I think that's everything is correct. I'd say that I'd replace efficient with effective. 
sometimes effective is not efficient. But at the end of the day, it's about how you're able to solve the problem, focusing on the right one. How does how does one go about doing that? I guess is the hard question, and, and I'm sure if if we all knew the answer to that question, we would you know we as an army would be all adaptive, outstanding leaders who are solving all these complex problems. Um, so that may that may be a loaded question, but how do we go about instilling that mental framework into our into our leaders and soldiers? Let me give you an example. When was the last time that you went to a range to a rifle range? About. Two years ago, two or three years ago. And what did you do there? We showed up and we did our PMI stuff and we zeroed and then we qualified. Okay. Well, I would submit to you that's not the purpose of a rifle range. The purpose of a rifle range is to increase one's marksmanship ability, shooting skills. Qualification is merely a capture of one's ability. As soon as you take qualification off the table and realize what you're really trying to do, is make people shoot better, the focus of the range completely changes. So in literally the last 20 seconds, I see the look on your face. You you understand what I'm talking about because I framed the problem differently because the outcome is distinctly different in the example that I used. So this just gives you a uh, an example, a picture of what I'm talking about and how we do it. Okay, so the idea being that the outcome... And defining the outcome allows you to take what a, a, a multitude of different routes to get to that that certain outcome. That's exactly right. And uh, the fact that the way you said it, multiple different routes, is exactly right because that means now we're working in gray space that may be a little uncomfortable for someone who has delivered training education in a methodical manner. But that's okay. So if there's leadership that's willing to take a little bit of risk, I think that you can yield some huge gains on the back-end benefit. So to round this out, if you're a cadet here at West Point or if you're a brand-new lieutenant, how do you how do you go about developing this this sort of mindset within yourself first and foremost and then within your, your subordinates or the people that you're influencing in your organization? A lot of the resources that we have over generated over 10 years' worth of studying problems, understanding environments, working with units, is captured in uh, some of our databases. One of them is available to anyone with a CAT card. In www.milsuite.mil forward slash book groups asymmetric warfare group knowledge center. That's a DOD database, Milsuite. It's commonly familiar to many people, but we place many of our uh, refined products uh, onto it to include some of the things that uh, one can use for training some of this agility and adaptiveness. For the current NCO or officer that may listen to this podcast, and certainly to the population of cadets who I hope is listening to this podcast, there's opportunity uh, in a uh, career enhancement standpoint within AWG. We hire mostly senior NCOs, E7s and above, large population of master sergeants and sergeants major because of their wisdom and experience, as well as a variety of officers in two categories, operational advisors and operational supporters. The operational advisors are the ones who are part of that global sensor array, and operational supporters help run the backside, the analytics, and the engine, which enable the operational advisors. 
The officers are typically combat arms, but are, in fact, a variety of branches that serve as advisors. And then you have the traditional, very different functional uh, skill sets that support, for example, personnel operations, logistics operations, etc. We look for officers post-command, senior captains, and post-KD complete uh, majors who are available for a two, three, four-year uh, period of time as, uh, as broadening. Similarly for the NCOs, post-platoon sergeant time, first sergeant time, and sergeant's major time. Uh, well, sir, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk to us. I think it's it's extremely interesting what the asymmetric warfare group is doing and and really important for faculty, staff, and cadets here and for the larger force to understand sort of the, the outcomes-based approach that, that you guys are talking about in terms of framing a problem and, and in terms of self-development. So thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.